Hi guys, welcome back to What's the Crime for a brand new episode with Grania and Gemma. Hello. So today's episode is about the story of Colleen Stan. Beside the Sacramento River, Northern California, lies a small town called Red Bluff. Never heard of it. But in 1977, it had a population of about 10,500. You know, relatively small town. It was sort of a place where, like, there was very few secrets or, you know, anything like a big affair or something. Just like everyone knows everyone. Everyone knows everyone. Like, that was big news. <laughs> like Von Crana. Like Von Crana, where we're from. <laughs> But it was a, a nice place to raise a family, you know, strangers still nodded, said hello on the street, that kind of stuff. That real small town sort of, you know, way of going on. On the 19th of May, 1977, there was probably loads of reasons why Colleen Stan should not have been hitchhiking. But like this was at a time when hitchhiking was really normal, you know, like those reasons just didn't seem important. Yeah. Like everyone did it. It was just a normal thing to do, a normal way to get around. It was a normal way to get around. Like people would thumb rides on the freeways and it was almost like a rite of passage for like young Americans. It was cheap. It was easy. Um, and just, you know, you never knew who you were going to meet along the way. Colleen left Eugene, which was in Oregon, that morning at around 11 a.m. when her roommates, Alice and Bob, drove her to the freeway. So she stood at the side of the road, um, you know, just like any other hitchhiker in a small town. It was like fairly dominated by university students in the University of Oregon. She was medium height, medium build. She had long, thick hair um, and she was only age 20. So she was still quite naive to the world, the workings of the world. So where was she going? Where was she thumbing this left? So her destination was Westwood, which uh, is a small town in Northern California. And that's where her friend Linda lived. So it was Linda's birthday and uh, the, the day was Thursday. So Colleen told Alice that she would be back on Saturday, back in Eugene where they lived. So So she lives in Red Bluff. No, she does not live in Red Bluff. What does Red Bluff have? Why are you talking about Red Bluff? Because Red Bluff is where the story is set. We're just not there yet. Please have some patience. (laughs) (laughs) Just like saying Red Bluff. (laughs) I like the name too, Red Bluff. Anyway, so Interstate 5, uh, this was her route, okay? It's a big, huge interstate. It goes all the way from like the Canadian border to San Diego. So she was making good time. After just two rides, she was all the way down to Red Bluff. Um, And it was just four o'clock. So here she would exit the freeway and head east with another hundred miles to go. So a carload of boys, um, they stopped and offered her a lift, but she turned them down. Obviously, a carload of boys, a little bit risky. Like she still has her wits about her. She felt probably intimidated. Probably. Uh, another couple stopped as well, um, but they were only going a short distance and it wasn't really worth her while, so she turned them down too. Then a blue Dodge cult pulled over and Colleen saw a young couple in front. So there was a woman holding a baby in her arms um, and they looked about Colleen's age. Uh, the man said they were headed towards Mineral, which was a huge step in the right direction. So she's like, yeah, perfect. They seem safe. Um, and she throws her sleeping bag and her backpack into the back and she climbs in. So things didn't start off great. Like she, Colleen was carrying a, a jug of juice with her. Um, and when she opened it to take a drink, the so driver... A bottle, a bottle of juice? No, I think it was an actual jug like that you took the top off. Anyway, that's not important. <laughs> she, um, So she's drinking it and he accelerates the car and it spills all down her top. So... Look, she doesn't take this as a bad omen, nor does she pay any attention to the odd looking wooden box on the seat beside her. She couldn't help but notice that the driver of the car kept kind of glancing back at her in the rear view mirror. And this kind of understandably made her a bit nervous. So they stopped for gas and Colleen took this opportunity to go into the toilet um, and change her blouse because obviously she'd spilt the juice on it. Um, and standing in there, she kind of had this strange feeling that she should escape. Like there was like a voice in her head telling her to run. And she even noticed like a small window and the voice in her head was like, crawl outside, crawl out the okay. window, you need to go. 
So she's like, look, shaking this off. She's like, okay, this is weird, whatever. Everything's fine. And she goes back to the car. The wife had bought some chocolate bars and they continued to where they were going. And, you know, there was chit chat, it was conversation um, and the, the conversation turned towards ice caves. So the driver was like, oh, you know, my brother said there's some ice caves up around here. Wouldn't that be something to see? <laughs> like if you're going to your friend's birthday, you're like, no, I know. just you're get like, me there. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> Obviously, you know, she's polite. Like, let's um, go see some. Oh, oh they're cool. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, oh, go the last thing I want to see is ice caves. <laughs> like, get me to the party. <laughs> But anyway, so she's like, obviously she's polite um, and she doesn't want to go, of course, but she doesn't mind. It's their car, they're driving her. So there was some discussion between the couple about where exactly the turnoff was. And then they were sort of going down this bumpy road about a mile or so down the road. They stopped. It was quiet out, like there was a little stream nearby. But other than that, they were completely alone. So the wife stepped out from the car carrying her baby over to the nearby stream. Then the driver climbs out, leaving Colleen momentarily alone in the back seat of the two-door cult. The driver then came over to the passenger side of the car, suddenly pulled the seat forward, jumped in and put a knife to her throat. Put your hands above your head, he ordered. She froze. She's so frightened. He repeats the orders and he presses the blade harder against her skin. So she panicking she lifts her arms above her head he grabs her hands put on a pair of handcuffs and locked them behind her back then she felt a leather strap going around her head and her chin making it impossible for her to open her mouth this was like a gag of some sort then he grabs her ankles and wraps a rope around them and ties a knot so now she's blindfolded she's handcuffed she's bound and she's gagged the strange wooden box thing that i said that she'd noticed sitting on the seat beside her she didn't know at the time was this man's creation. It was made of plywood and it was only about the size of a hat box, but it was surprisingly heavy. He opened it now, forced her to lie down and maneuvered her head into the box. Oh my God, I'm, this is so claustrophobic. Uh, wild claustrophobic, wild scary. Um, so he closes it around her neck and um, she is so panicked. It shuts out like all light. It muffles sound. She would soon come to know this contraption as the head box. What? The man uh, covered her with her sleeping bag that she had so conveniently brought with her. Um, And then he just like calls his wife. She brings their infant daughter back to the car, gets in. Then they start the engine, turn back toward the dirt road. And this like average looking family just head leisurely toward home. Like that would be... You're, they're the last people, like if you were yes. thumbing and this young couple with a child yes. stop, you're like, oh, they're grand. Like there's a, there's a man and a woman and a child. Um, this is fine. This is safe. And also, you know, when she's like in the um bathroom, when she's changed her top and she, yeah. like, she had that feeling to like run, yeah. shows you like, listen to your gut. I know. So this head box was suffocatingly hot. It was so claustrophobic. Like the thought of it is wild scary. She feels smothered. It seems like a long, hot eternity before she can make out any traffic noises. And then she sort of realises, right, they're returning to Red Bluff. So it was after dark when the Dodge came to a halt. The man comes around to the back seat, unties her ankles so she can walk and took off the head box. Everything else, the handcuffs, the blindfold, the gag stays on. So she can't see anything? No. She's led out of the car into a house and guided down... Um, a short flight of stairs into a basement the woman didn't come with them so Colleen's now alone in the basement with her kidnapper stand up here he ordered he maneuvered her on top of something and as she stepped up she saw through like the corner at the bottom of her blindfold that it was like this ice chest so he puts the handcuffs across a pipe that ran along the ceiling locks them again so now her arms are suspended above her head he stripped her of her jeans throwing them on the floor and she of course, feels this wave of dread. So he took the cuffs off and then tied leather bands to her wrists from the ceiling. And then the support went out from beneath her. So you know how she was So she's just like hanging. She's just hanging from the ceiling. By the handcuffs. The pain No, not by the handcuffs, by these leather straps. Oh, by her her wrists. By her wrists. So she, she feels this sudden hot strain on her wrists on her shoulders and her back like she's kicking out 
um, trying to find something to stand herself up on. She's struggling. She's throwing her legs out again and again. And then a sharp pain like slaps her across the back and then her stomach. Um, the man shouts at her to stop kicking and relax. And she realizes that he had whipped her. Oh, God. Who is so this sick, sick, sick man? She, she hung there, stunned, trembling, absolutely panicked. She could hear him moving around the, base, the, the basement. And out of that little small gap at the bottom of the blindfold, she can see like an open magazine. And there's a photograph. And Colleen can see that it's a photograph of a naked woman hanging pretty much exactly the way she is now. She is absolutely terrified. Of course. Her... Um, her family in Southern California had no reason to even believe she'd left Eugene where she was staying with Alice and Bob. Um, she, like Alice and Bob, thought she was hitchhiking to Linda's in Westwood and they didn't even, you know, they wouldn't even have heard from her for a few days. So no one would even know she was missing. Yeah, no one's looking for her. The man's steps come back toward her. He grabs her ankles and just barely sort of sets her tiptoes so she could stand on something easing the weight of her wrists slightly. He left the basement, uh, got his wife and brought her back down with him. So the gap at the bottom of her blindfold, she can see a little bit of what's going on below her. She can see sort of that the floor is concrete and she can make out like a sort of low structure. She thinks it's a table. And then she caps, uh, caught a glimpse of her captors. They seem to be like ticking off their clothes. What? And then she watches them lie down and embrace and she realised that they're having sex no, I'm gonna her be feet. sick. And she felt sick. Obviously. Then when they finished, the woman headed back up the stairs and shut the door behind her. So weird. The man approaches her and yanks again the support out from under her feet. And again, the pain shoots up and down her arms, across her back. And she hangs there for some time, her arms, you know, wide apart from the ceiling, naked, apart from the socks that he'd left on her feet. Then... Eventually, he unhooks her wrist from the beam and took her down. And then he forced her down into another one of his contraptions. So this is a box. It's roughly kind of square. Stands about three feet high and he puts her in like uh, face first. Like her body's like cramped. Um, then she feels her jaw loosen and he took the leather gag off from her head. Um, so she's now able to talk. She's like, please let me go. But her words are cut short because he puts the, the head box thing on again around oh her head. Oh my God. So she's in a box, like in this, her whole body fits into this box. And then she's got this head And then box she's on another box now on her head. So she couldn't move. Like what a terrifying, petrifying sensation. She's in darkness. She can't move. The head box is like choking her, this hot, heavy head box. And she suffered in the basement for what seemed like eternity. Well, like one minute of that would be eternity. So when she had caught that ride out of Red Bluff with this wholesome looking couple, she had fallen into this man's trap. Now she was held captive in a box in their basement, blindfold around her eyes, this sort of sensory deprivation box locked around her head. And she thought she's going to suffocate. She thinks he's left me here and I'm going to die. Okay, so I'm just going to briefly interrupt this episode because we just want to say a very quick thank you to our sponsor for season three, the Muff Liquor Company. So before you start sniggering, Muff is actually a village in Donegal and they have a liquor company. So get your head out of the gutter. <laughs> the Muff Liquor Company is an award-winning premium handcrafted Irish spirit company. You can purchase six times distilled handcrafted Irish gin whiskey and vodka and I mean we have personally tasted all of the above <laughs> numerous times <laughs> so we can say firsthand that they are definitely the best but don't just take our word for it you can order online at themuffliquorcompany.com Hi what can I get you? Hi uh, can I get two sparkling waters and two uh, mo- mo- margaritas? No uh Two mo... Mojitos. No, sorry. Uh, just two mo... Moscow Mules? Having trouble asking for our famous vodka and gin by name? 
No problem, because now you can buy your favourite muff liquor online. Fancy enjoying a bit of muff at home? Order now at themuffliquorcompany.com and use discount code What's the Crime for 10% off. The Muff Liquor Company. Come for the name, stay for the taste. Over 18s, drink responsibly. Visit drinkaware.ie. So please do let us know if you enjoy a nice gin and tonic or a nice hot whiskey listening to the next episode of What's the Crime. The next morning, the man came downstairs and took Colleen out of the box. She was exhausted, like she had just experienced this night from hell. Um, But unfortunately, I don't think she realised that the worst was yet to come. He now decided to strap her to a rack. This is like another one of his like contraptions. And then he left her there with the head box still on for the rest of the day. What? Who is this man? Like, what? what is this about? This is so <laughs> sick. I'll get to that. That evening, they finally brought down Colleen's first meal. He let her up from the rack and he removed the head box, but the blindfold stayed on. Her dinner was like a bowl of potatoes or something and like a glass of water. And then after she'd finished that, she was allowed to use a bedpan. And... Colleen was initiated into what would become her new awful routine, one meal a day, extreme isolation, torturous restraints and unexpected brutality. While Colleen was lying on the rack in this basement, her friends in Oregon were going concerned. Colleen had told her roommate Alice Walsh that she would be back in Eugene on Saturday, May 21st. But when Colleen failed to reappear... She guessed that maybe she sort of continued on down California to visit her mum, who lived in Riverside. So on Monday, May 23rd, Alice called Colleen's mum to see if Colleen was there. But their conversation sort of left them both worried. So Alice knew, obviously, that Colleen had actually intended to visit Linda Smith, her friend in Westwood. But she would no way to get in touch with Linda. Like, bear in mind, this was the 70s. Like, they didn't have mobile phones. Yeah. So on Tuesday, Alice called the Westwood police. So they checked with Linda, um, who told them that she had not seen Colleen for some time. Um, They reported this back to Alice. So by the Wednesday, Alice was like, look, it's time to contact the Eugene Police Department. And she filed a missing person report. So the description read, Colleen Jean Stan, date of birth, 31st of the 12th, 56, white female, 5 foot 6, 135 pounds, long, light brown hair, blue eyes, freckles, last seen wearing a grey t-shirt, blue jeans, a plaid jacket, brown shoes and has a sleeping bag, a sweater and a purse. But like so many other missing bulletins, missing person bulletins, this one didn't really get any response um, and it was filed away and, and kind of forgotten about. She had simply vanished. Um, there was no evidence to suggest that she had been kidnapped. There was no evidence that linked her disappearance to any sort of particular area. Um, so really, they kind of didn't know what to do. Colleen had a pleasant childhood. She was the eldest of three daughters and her parents, Jack and Evelyn, split up when she was three years old. Colleen was sort of mainly raised by her mum, who was like a sociable, chatty woman. But she was also, you know, she stayed very close to her father as well. He was a quieter man and he was a contractor. At 16, she dropped out of high school and she married 22-year-old Tom Stan. So not much is really known about this, you know, this man. Um, He was sort of from out of town. Colleen had met him a few months earlier. Her dad then gave her permission to marry him um, and they got married in Nevada on December 12th, 1973. So she's she's so young. She's not even 17 yet. Um, She moved in with him in his home state of Ohio, but they started having problems and the marriage ended within a year. She returned home heartbroken um, and then she made friends with a couple from Oregon, Alice Walsh and her boyfriend Bob. So she moved with them up to Eugene and they found a place together um, and that's the couple that I spoke about that she was living with when she left Oregon at yeah. the start who were like worried about her. Father's Day fell exactly three weeks after the day that Alice Walsh had contacted the Eugene Police Department about Colleen's disappearance. So in Riverside, uh, Colleen's dad, Jack Martin, he worried because no word came from her for fa- from her for Father's Day. So she always remembered, you know, just like birthdays, special occasions. Even yeah. if she wasn't there, she would send a card or something. 
So when Colleen's absence was sort of stretching out a, you know, a month, the sort of hopes of her returning or just something came up was really starting to dim. So he called uh, Colleen's mother. So even though they'd been divorced for like 18 years, they're like, you know what, let's drive to Eugene, which was like more than a thousand miles to sort of see what's going on, to get her things, blah, blah, blah. So they make the drive over a weekend on Saturday, June 25th. And again, they contact the Eugene police and the police had no new information to give them. As they drove north toward Oregon and then south back to Riverside, Colleen's parents could never have imagined that as they sped past Red Bluff on Interstate 5, that they passed within about a mile of where their daughter was being held. Nor could they ever have imagined in their worst nightmares the condition in which she was being kept. Meanwhile... Colleen's long periods of isolation were only broken in the evening. So usually in the evening time at about eight o'clock, the couple would finish dinner. Um, for a short amount of time, she would be freed from the head box and allowed up from this rack. Her drink was always water and she was always fed whatever leftovers they had for dinner. And then she had she was allowed to use the bedpan um, with a blindfold in place without any privacy. Afterwards, the man would hang her up and whip her, and this became her bleak routine. He would also come downstairs in the evenings and was and did some sort of work, so she could hear him doing this work, like whatever he was doing. She could hear him sawing and like moving things around, like making more contraptions. Uh-huh. You're guessing it. He hardly ever even spoke to her. Um, it took him about ten days to complete his latest contraption. It stood about three feet tall, six and a half feet long, um, and had a solid lid that opened at the top. It took up about as much space as a freezer, but was shaped like a coffin. Colleen was put into this box and the head box was removed, but she was still blindfolded and she was still And this is where she would lie for the whole time. This is where she was lying, yeah. Um, She was blindfolded and naked still, as she had been since her abduction, um, locked inside this new box. This is... Like, undescribable, the fear you'd have. Five weeks since Colleen had been kidnapped and it had been that long now since she had bathed, since she'd brushed her teeth or washed her hair. She had stopped menstruating. She existed on the barest necessities of food and water. So she knew it was morning if it was, like, cooler in the box. She knew it was afternoon when it got really hot. And then she knew sort of evening time, nighttime when the box cooled down again. This is just stuff of nightmares. I know. Everything about it, everything, like the claustrophobic alone. I know, I know. Um, the man's wife generally stayed away. She, Colleen had been surprised one day when she actually came downstairs with um, a glass of lemonade, letting Colleen sit up out of the box to drink it. That was so nice of her. <laughs> but other than that, she pretty much like kind of stayed away, Um, you know, invisible in the background. Um, Colleen was sometimes put up, sort of put locked down on this rack, but more often she was hung by both arms, always naked, always blindfolded, and frequently whipped. On occasion, she sort of knew as well that he was taking like photographs of her because she could hear the click of the camera and she could sort of see the flash of the lights behind the blindfold. As the days crawled by, the list of these disgusting, sadistic. Fantasies that this man acted out in her like lengthened. Like once he had her hanging by the wrists, he had like a, a heat lamp next to her skin, like while it burned. Another time he touched her with live electrical wires. He orally raped her, he strangled her, and she was just like this guinea pig that he would just subject her to just about anything that he could think of. Eventually, Colleen managed a small victory. She learned his name. So she had thought that she'd heard the woman calling him Cameron. But now it was confirmed. One evening when she was out of the box, she could see again through that little tiny hole at the bottom of her blindfold um, that he had a belt on. And on the back of it, she could see Cameron engraved on it. So now she's pretty sure at least of his name, if nothing else. Cameron Hooker had waited a long time for this day to come when he could finally take a third person into his marriage. 
Nearly two years. There's other ways of doing that, Cameron. (laughs) (laughs) Nearly two years had gone by since he'd first discussed the subject with his wife, but the idea had been brewing inside him for a really long time. Nothing in his upbringing would have predisposed him to any sort of unnatural tendencies. Like he was raised within a traditional warm, caring family. You know, no child abuse, no divorce, no... Was there any signs of it in, for, from him no, when he was a teenager? Not, so I suppose not as a child, maybe as a teenager. He was born in Altres, California, November 5th, 1953, to a couple that had moved out from Arkansas in search of a better life. So um, his dad worked in construction and his mum sort of stayed home to take care of him and his younger brother. He was described as a happy child, but then as he kind of got a bit older... This is where these like fantasies came into play. Um, and he longed to like act them out. It, it was in 1973 when a mutual friend introduced Cameron to Janice. So Janice was like a bit naive. She was a bit insecure. Um, well, of course, actually, she was only 15 years old at the time. Um, and she found the attention of this 19 year old flattering, you know, like she's young. He's not he's really nice to her. He's not like all the other all the other boys that age. Um, and they start dating. So they go out for drives and burgers and chips, go into the cinema, normal dating stuff. So when Cameron proposed to her, her fear of rejection encouraged her to do whatever it took to keep him happy. He wanted to hang her up, suspend her by the wrists from a tree without her clothes on. Um, he's like, oh, look, my other girlfriends let me do this. Like loads of people do this. Like this is normal. Of course, she's so young. She's so naive. She's She wants to keep him happy. She goes along with it. But when it happened, it was so painful. She hated it. And then when he took her down after, he was so affectionate and so happy that she's like, oh, okay, actually, maybe it wasn't that bad. Like, maybe I could do this again. But these excursions became like regular events. It was going on like two or three times a month. He would take her to the woods and they would experiment. And it frightened her, but she endured it because of how like nice he was to her afterwards and she's like okay it's worth this like temporary pain but then he started to bring out like whips and stuff um and this is when she's like look this is too much she's too afraid to tell her parents she's too embarrassed to tell anybody else because at this point she sort of knows it's not right and she's worried like her parents are going to punish her or worse make her stop seeing Cameron. Cameron Uh, during a year and a half of dating, she decided she's in love with him um, and she wants commitment. And so they get married on January the 18th, 1975 in Reno, Nevada. So they don't have much money, but they don't really have a lot of high expectations. They just sort of are like happy enough to make do. Um, And for the first couple of years, Janice does try to like fulfill her husband's fantasies. But as these experiments we're getting like more and more violent and more and more painful. She's like no longer wanting to participate. So then Cameron obviously realizing that either she doesn't want to continue with it or she's not going to put up with it or maybe just getting bored. I don't really know. He discussed with her this fantasy that he'd had for this long time. He wanted to bring a third person into the home, another woman who would have to submit to his experiments. He's like, oh, it'll be easier on you, you know, just go along with it. Like, it'll be fine. So she eventually says yes. She's relieved by the idea that he's going to focus like the painful acts, the painful things on somebody else. Um, But she's like, look, okay, you can do this. But she's intent that they can't have sex, him and this third person. She's like, no, that's where I draw the line. You know, me and your man and wife, or man and wife, man and <laughs> wife, sorry. Me and your man and wife and like true intimacy is only for us. So it's not sure how they sort of came to the understanding that, but they kind of decided they're going to kidnap somebody. I don't know how you come to that As you do, that's not an understanding. But anyway. But Janice wanted him to agree to something in return to have a baby. So she does. She gets pregnant. She has a baby girl in the fall of 1976. Um, But at that point, Cameron still hadn't managed to find like a suitable person to kidnap. So he had all the equipment ready. Like he'd made this head box, but something sort of kept going wrong. Um, But then they did eventually. Their luck changed on May 19th, 1977. um, He came home from work, picked up his wife and baby, went for a drive around. And that's when they saw... Colleen Stan 
They stopped, offered her a ride. She looks, surveys them, assesses them, and she's like, yeah, they seem safe. Yeah, they've got a child. This is sick. When winter approached Northern California, it blew a wet chill in the air. So Christmas approached and the couple, like most people, spent Christmas with their families. They exchanged presents. They shared meals. And they never let on that anything was amiss. Anything amiss that there's a, they've a, a kidnapped human being. human being in their basement locked up in a box. And meanwhile, exactly that. She spends another dark day locked up in that box in the basement. And it should have been like a double celebration for her because on the 31st of December, which was New Year's Eve, it would have been her 21st birthday. God. After almost eight months of continued torture, abuse, isolation and humiliation subjected to Colleen, on the evening of January 25th, 1978, Cameron Hooker comes downstairs to the basement to Colleen. So she was inside. She she didn't have a blindfold on um, at this point. It was the first time she'd actually seen his face since the abduction. And he handed her a newspaper article and told her to read it. She hadn't like read anything in 251 days which was how long she'd been kidnapped now she's got this story in front of her and the story is talking about the buying and selling of women so she is reading the story she's she's actually getting horrified it talks about the S&M rage so it talks about that this has created a demand like way beyond common prostitution um, and it's given rise to an, like a different trade even in the US, it said that women were forced to sign contracts that totally relinquished control over their lives, over their bodies, over their souls. These women were basically sold into slavery, had no rights, no, their owners basically could do whatever they wished. There was an underground brotherhood of slave traders as large as the mafia that could, you know, they controlled all of this, but they also enforced like these laws that they could hunt down and punish girls that ran away. So by the time Colleen has read this article, she's shook, like she's completely, she can't believe that such evil could exist in the world. But the picture of the woman, naked and bound, looked all too similar to what she had endured countless times. They know you're here, he said. Cameron explained that it was the company who knew she was there. The company, an organisation that was described in the article as a network of slave traders who turned captive women into profit. And now the company knew that he held Colleen Stan prisoner in his basement and he would have to register her. Janice, his wife, standing next to him. Colleen took the paper, handed it to Colleen, or sorry, Cameron took the paper, handed it to Colleen and told her that she had to sign it. So she can see that he's holding a contract exactly like the one that she had just read about in this article. So she's looking at this official looking document and now I'm just going to read a small bit out of this document because it's kind of hard to understand but this is some of the terms that were in this contract. So this is a contract? This is a contract that he's handed her after she's read this article okay and he's like I'm, you need to sign this. Oh, so he hands her a contract then. Yes, that's saying what it. I'm just after saying. You didn't say that. I did say that. Right, okay. You just weren't listening to me. Oh, well, I missed that part. Okay. She shall, at all times, afford master absolute respect. She'll address him only as sir or master. She'll station herself in a physical position subordinate to his whenever possible and should speak to or otherwise distract him only when granted his permission. She shall constantly maintain her female body parts in such circumstances as will demonstrate and ensure that they are fully open to him. In particular, she shall never cross her legs in his presence. She'll wear no undergarments any time and she'll cover no part of her body with apparel or material of any description except when the act of doing so and design of the item are expressly approved by him. She shall preserve her female body parts for the exclusive use of him and his assigns, which use shall be the sole source of her pleasures and she shall engage in no self-gratification or any physical contact with any others. Slave does hereby irrevocably declare and acknowledge her everlasting unconditional dedication to serving master to his full satisfaction. Right. That's a lot to unpack. Colleen's like, this is the work of the devil. So she says, well, what if I don't sign it? And he replies, if you don't sign it, I'll sign it for you and I'll make you wish you had. He told her that the company required that she wear a slave collar as identification, a 
tight fitting collar made of stretchy gold metallic material. So he closed it around her neck and he told her it's costing him $1,500 to register her with the company. He said that they're going to provide security that's going to watch the house. It's going to monitor the phones. So if she ever tried to run away, that they would catch her and torture her so mercilessly that she would be lucky if she survived. He described her runaways were punished by having their hands nailed to a beam from which they were left to hang for days. He gave her a name and decided on the letter K. So he's like, this is your new name. You're not going to be known as Colleen anymore. Now you're going to be known as K. And it wasn't even the name K. It was the letter. So all of these horrors are like clicking into place for Colleen. Colleen is like, okay, this is how this evil can exist because there's this like underground organization almost this like cult of men that are preying on these like young women so now it's clear in black and white she was no longer Colleen Stan but simply Kay having signed the slavery contract she must strictly obey the rules always address Cameron as sir or master and always address Jan as ma'am she must never look at Cameron in the face and never cross her legs or wear underwear. She must kneel before him to ask a question or ask permission to do anything. So if she was ever to like try and contact her family, he warned her that the company would retaliate with five days of crucifixion for her and the death of the family member that she contacted. So these rules were now established. So Kay was sort of now allowed to kind of like come out of the box and come up out of the basement. Kay, Colleen. Colleen, who's now known as Kay to the the couple. So at night when the curtains were drawn and there was no sort of, nobody was expected to like call in or drop in, she was allowed to come upstairs, but she was put to work. So her, her jobs were like cooking, washing dishes, cleaning. Now, obviously... It's not what she would wanted, but it's so like it's an improvement to the ordeal yeah, that she had she had had to go through. Janice, Cameron's wife, found the whole situation unnerving. Well, to say the least, Janice. She's overwhelmed, but she's like, OK, I should trust my husband. The problem with this new woman being around the house was that Janice now sort of starts to feel doubtful of Cameron's love for her. Um, and the, their agreement between each other, like I had said, was that there was going to be no like sex between Cameron and uh, Kay, aka Colleen, the slave. And this was like technically true in terms of like penetration, but Janice is like worried. So she's like, okay, one morning she's like, do you want to bring Kay up? stairs and sleep with her but she soon regretted asking so she was just testing the waters to see if he would pretty much but like he went downstairs I got Kay out of the box brought her upstairs naked and afraid no idea what's about to happen oh, Jesus. Um, and he raped her Janice was so upset about this that it actually made her physically ill and this sort of marked a change in their already bizarre weird relationship after nearly a year, they moved to a new house about five miles away. So it was quieter here with less neighbours and it kind of gave them more security to keep uh, Colleen hidden. Or sorry, Kay. New, I'm going to call her Kay from here on because this is what she's referred to. Um, so in this new home, she's shown her new quarters. So she goes in and before her, there's like this big massive water bed. And Cameron's like, he shows her like this hole at the bottom it's an entrance to like a really small space beneath the bed and he's like this is where you're going to be staying now once she got in he placed like a board across it um and he put some steps up against it then so if anyone was to walk in it would just look like this beautiful big waterbed with these steps up to it with no idea that there's an actual human being underneath underneath Summer slid into autumn and Kay remained encased in the blackness. So with like gas prices soaring, inflation soaring and now five mouths to feed, Jan has since had another baby. So, so they're just like she's having another child just going on with their normal life while they just have this literally a slave. Yeah, pretty much. 
Locked in their house. Um, so money's tight now. They've got five mouths to feed, inflation, blah, blah, blah. So after some discussion, they decided that Janice would look for a job. So she was 21. She didn't really have any skills, but she did get a job at a, um, a fast food place. The pay wasn't great, but it was better than nothing. And the hours worked out well because when Cameron was at work she was at home and then when um he finished work there was a, a like an overlap and then she was able to go and start at work at five o'clock in the evening so um and then she would work sort of right up until maybe midnight even um so this was worked for them in terms of childcare, um and then once Jan Janice had gone for work Cameron actually used his time to open um the, the panel at the bottom of the bed let Kay out and he sort of just was like you can feed and care for the baby and only getting to sit down whenever he gave her permission oh Jesus so it's worse and worse Janice didn't know that this was going on she thought Cameron was taking care of the baby but he's like well I have no need to do it like I have a slave Kay asked Cameron about possibly getting to see her parents but he's like nope no way the company wouldn't allow it no slave has ever been allowed to visit their families um after signing the contract so just like forget about your past life Kay's captivity spanned such a long period that the days just sort of got lost in each other like the months the seasons her day varied so little that it was just like repetition and they all sort of like blurred together in the beginning of 1980, which is three years after her initial abduction, Janice and Cameron gift her a Bible. Um, and a, it's about this time that like there's like a, a change in her sort of enslavement. She entered a period of freedom. And this is a time that she would sort of loosely refer to as the year out. She was gradually let out for longer periods and sort of given more responsibilities like with less supervision as well. So she was allowed to like work outdoors in the vegetable garden, which she loved. Um, and in time, she was even allowed to like go into the town to shop um, and like just talk to people, like things she hadn't experienced in years. But she was just so afraid. She was so afraid. And she sort of kind of like just gradually came to accept that her life was to be a slave and, and she tried to be a good one. Like during her time in captivity, she proved that she was hardworking and she wouldn't do anything stupid. Like on one of her first trips out, um, it came in early 1980. The hookers got her out of the box. The hookers? The hookers. That's their surname. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I thought the story was taking another turn. <laughs> um, They... Basically, let her out of the box, showered her, fixed her up with some of Jan's clothes, a new hairdo, makeup, and she was told she was going to go out dancing with Janice. What? This is so strange. At a local bar, they drank beer, they danced, and they even met a couple of men who accompanied them back to the men's apartment. Like, Kay sort of didn't actually go in anywhere privately with the men. She sort of stayed out chatting, but I think that this was like her... Um, Janice's way of trying to make Cameron jealous like with you know Janice talking to these other men um, because she still felt jealous about Kay being in the house and obviously everything that happened between him and um, her more people had moved into the neighbourhood now and neighbours were acquainted with Kay. Who... So wait there, they just went this night out and then just came back home yeah. like this is... And just returned and you're a slave back, again. whatever. Yeah. Uh, more people moved into the neighbourhood now and the neighbours the, the neighbors, like got like acquainted with Kay. Um, they just knew her as like the hookers living babysitter and housekeeper. Um, she wasn't overly friendly with neighbours. Like Cameron had her well warned, you know, not to speak to anybody unless she was spoken to um with Kay's new freedom she was even allowed to go jogging unsupervised on a regular basis now she did always ask permission and Cameron would time her so he knew it took her 15 minutes to jog a mile um obviously this wasn't just a workout this was like time for her to be just be on her own yeah um and that was like the bit of respite that she got to be away from them and from their demands so while in some ways 
her conditions improved the physical and sexual abuse still was a regular occurrence like she was raped repeatedly she was hung an act that was horrendously painful she was strangled beat burnt shocked whipped and brutalized in just about any way that Cameron could think of now he was always careful that, that his daughters never witnessed any of this because he has two daughters remember I know this, this is just mind-blowing he has two daughters and he can do he's doing this he's, oh it's disgusting during this time when she had this freedom Kay again asked to see her family um, and he actually allowed her to write to her sister although of course she had to be careful about what she said and also she couldn't give a return address so she wasn't getting like any letters back um, but these this did nothing for her like you're not getting an answer you're not actually you don't even know if they're getting to exactly. yeah, yeah. So um, he did actually say then that she was allowed to phone home. So he took her to a payphone in Chico, which was a small college town. That's about 40 miles southeast of Red Bluff. And he let her call home while he stood next to her. So her younger sister, Bonnie, answered. And it had been so many years since she'd heard from Colleen that she didn't even recognise her voice. So Colleen told her that she was all right. And she learned that, you know, her family were all okay. Um, She was obviously evasive, only saying that she kind of was north but didn't answer where she was why she couldn't come home um and after this conversation with her sister she was just so happy she was so grateful that she'd been allowed to call home like she kind of started to find like all of these reasons to be thankful like despite the brutalization the the abuse she kind of started expressing gratitude and even love for her captor um so it's like Stockholm Syndrome. Exactly. And like, as difficult as it is to imagine. She was brainwashed. By she him. was, but he was also professing that he like loved her too. Janice, however, Cameron's wife, she has like mixed feelings towards this woman. She's like, she feels sorry for her, but she's also jealous of her. The Christmas of 1980 was unlike any that Kay had experienced while being with the hookers. So after all those years of confinement, she was allowed to like soak up the holiday with them. She was allowed to phone home on Christmas Eve. But unbeknownst to her, this year out would be coming to an end. Cameron didn't really allow for like Jan and Kay to like interact properly. Aside from like brief orders from Janice, like the woman sort of complained to Cameron about each other um, and it annoyed him so much that he's just like nope I'm taking action he tells Janice that she has to quit her job she has to stay and take care of the girls and Kay is going back in the box but he decided that Kay was actually allowed one final glimpse of freedom he informed her she would be the first slave ever to visit her family what? so the arrangements with the company were nearly complete um the, like all her family members would be monitored their homes and cars would be bugged with listening devices company surveillance teams would be watching her and her family at all times um, and these precautions would cost a total of like $30,000 all of which was coming out of Cameron's company account that he had earned by capturing runaways years ago he was making this big financial sacrifice for her she'd be like the first ever slave to be permitted to go and see her family um, and they would have to stop at company headquarters so she would be like evaluated before actually being allowed to give to get this final permission to go basically so finally after she'd suffered a week of confinement in the box the day arrived on the 20th of March 1981, Cameron called in sick to work. They drove to Sacramento and Cameron stopped outside of some like office buildings and told her, wait in the car. He's going to go into the company headquarters and find out, you know, if they're going to subject her to any tests or whatever. So she's obviously sitting in the car. She's really nervous. She doesn't know what's going to happen. And then about 15 later, minutes later, he comes out of the building. He comes back to the car with some papers in his hands. And he's like, okay, you're getting off easy. They don't want to see you. You can just go on. So it was a long drive then to Southern California. Um, on the way down, they rehearsed this story. So this is a story that they're telling her parents. So basically they're like, this is my boyfriend, Mike. Um, he's going to drop me off because he's going on down to um, a computer seminar in San Diego. Um, they're telling them that they're engaged. They're in the process of moving. So they couldn't give an address or a phone number or anything like that. Um, 
and then as they approached Jack Martin's house. So um, this is her dad's house? This is her house, her, her dad's house. Um, it's like a little suburban home. He points out a surveillance team station nearby and he's like, look, I'm warning you again. If anything happens, if you say anything wrong, the company are going to run in. Not only are they going to take you away, but they're going to kill whoever is in the vicinity. It was a whirlwind visit. None of Colleen Stan's family knew what to make of this. They're like, they're thrilled to see her, obviously, but there's a lot of like unspoken questions. Yeah, obviously. Like Jack noticed that his long lost daughter is happy to be home, but he's like, she's pale. She looks unhealthy. When her younger sister comes home that night and she finds Colleen suddenly sitting on the couch, she's like, first of all, in shock. Again, like her dad, she notices that like Colleen's once curvy frame, now tiny. She's wearing like handmade clothes. They're hanging off her. Her hair that she once took such pride in is now like just thin and just just doesn't look like herself. Bonnie does work up the nerve to be like, you know, why didn't you write to me? And Colleen just simply says she couldn't. The next day, she was allowed to go and visit her mother just a few blocks away. But her um, visit gets cut short and she gets a phone call from Mike telling her it's time to go. She's like, what? Like, no, like I'm supposed to get more time, blah, blah, blah. Um, But he's like, no, that's it. So saying goodbye, she's so close to telling the truth. It's oh, like God. on the top of her tongue. She's just far too afraid because he has... so oh. afraid. And... And you can't, like, what are her parents thinking? Are they like, do they think she's in a cult? I think they think she's in a cult. I think they think she's in a cult and they're so happy to see her, but they don't want to push her too much because they're afraid they'll never see her again. Okay. Her year out had come to this abrupt end. So, you know, whatever Cameron's motives were, she went back into the box and she was sort of... So he just brings her home after that and just throws her back into this, under that waterbed. Yeah. And she's scarcely like let out over for the next few years, except to like eat and basically do Cameron's bidding. Like even the children who knew her at this point, they don't see her again until 1984. Which is how many years later? Three. Oh, this is crazy. As her imprisonment had come full circle again, she's like locked in the darkness. Her only relief was like this precious hour or two at night where she's let out to eat um, and, you know, being locked away again in this secret compartment beneath the bed. The household, the peace is kind of restored. Like Janice is able to go back to blocking out and pretending that nothing's wrong. And um, even though like they had actually initially kidnapped Colleen to sort of ease this physical hardship on Jan like she was still hung and whipped on a regular basis by Cameron too um the bible had become a big part of all of their lives um like about three times a week they would take Kay out of the box when the girls were at school and they allowed her to read the bible and pray together this is so bloody strange sort of in 1984 she was allowed like a few small freedoms again so at night she was able to sort of she was allowed to like get get herself something to eat um and her relationship with Janice kind of started to grow. The Bible was like the root of their friendship. Now, like now she was allowed out to sort of, um, you know, read the Bible and blah, blah, blah. But also she was allowed out for housework again. And the girls kind of would like chat over like sandwiches. And they kind of discovered that they had a lot in common. They both dropped out of high school at a young age for quick marriages. They both adored children. They were both like lonely, vulnerable women. And they didn't have any friends. Um, and more than anything else, they were both absolutely terrified of Cameron. Kay had been granted a long stretch of peace without any sort of abuse over the last few months. But during this time, Cameron um, actually turned his attention to Janice. Um, like he hung her, he whipped her. He told her it was like, oh, this is for your soul. This is the only way to get the devil out of you. Um with frequent meals, Kay, um, her bony frame, she kind of managed to, you know, fill out again. And, and be, you know, she was a more respectable weight now. Um, she didn't really know it at the time, but the hookers were intentionally trying to fatten her up because with her looking more nourished and cleaned up and with better clothes on, she was ready to face the world again. 
She no longer slept in the box beneath the bed, but in a sleeping bag on the living room floor. She was again reintroduced to the girls. She was allowed to babysit again. Um, But the real reason that they let her out of the box was because Cameron had decided that she should get a job. So in May of 1984, exactly seven years after her initial abduction, she drove around with Jan and eventually got a job in a motel. So early in June... Cameron made a mistake when he when Kay asked permission to go to uh, church with Janice and he said yes. So from then on, the two girls attended regularly. Um, like these, this family with these kids and these adults were like the picture of wholesomeness. But anxiety was eaten away at Janice. She was struggling to maintain this facade. Um, she sort of realised that Kay had become like her closest friend um, more than once she sought out her pastor's, pastor's advice now not obviously telling him what was going on but sort of like trying to like ask about the roles of like husbands and wives and third parties and blah 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 obviously not knowing what was going on he's just kind of giving her you know the normal advice of you know what he would say probably thinking that there's an affair or something going on Cameron meanwhile seems increasingly committed to the idea of capturing more slaves now this idea seconds Jan she's like no no way like this is bad enough she at this point she wants to leave but she's two young children she's nowhere to go she's never even lived alone um at one point she actually confided in Kay she's like I'm actually thinking of leaving Cameron Kay's like please don't leave me alone with him um but and then whenever um Janice is like come with me She's like, no, no, they'll find us. They'll torture us. I can't leave. Oh, yeah. She's petrified. On Thursday, August 9th, 1984, Janice hits a breaking point. She's like, the worst thing he can do is kill me. And he'd already almost done that countless times. At 11.30 a.m., she arrived at King's Lodge, which is a motel that Kay worked at. And she's like, I need to tell you something. Cameron lied about everything. The company, the slavery contract, the slavery contract. It was all lies. It was all to scare you to stay. Oh my God. And Kay's like, everything just comes crashing down. She's seven years. Seven She had the opportunity years. as well to stay with her family and tell them everything. And she was so afraid. Seven years of pain, of torment, of isolation. And worst of all of those things in her head, the fear of the unknown, the fear of what could happen. Uh, she was stunned. She was broken. She wept. She was tears of shock, disbelief. And Janice cried too. Janice said she was sorry. I don't feel sorry for Janice. I'm sorry. Like, all right, taking everything into account. I still don't feel sorry for her. I feel like she's yeah, no, there's a huge this. responsibility in this. So both women at this point are like, we have to get away from Cameron. So the next morning when Cameron left for work, the girls packed up their belongings. They picked up the, the, the two children and they fled to Janice's parents' home. So they're sort of like, OK, what do we do next? And they talked about staying together and trying to make a good home for the children. But in the back of Colleen's mind, there's like a voice urging her. They're like, she's like, she needs to go home. Yeah. Like Janet had Janice had to make it on her own. Yeah. And she's like, I can't help you anymore. So she rings her dad, Jack Martin, who hadn't heard from his daughter since that whirlwind visit back in 1981. <gasps> He's stunned to hear her voice again. The next day, with a bus ticket in hand, she phoned Cameron and tells him, I'm leaving you. I know the company's not real. She doesn't really remember anything that he said, but she does recall that he cried. Why? What? This, like, why did he, did he cry? Because probably a mixture of fear that he was going to get caught. Probably a mixture. And also, like, remember that, like, he claims to have loved her too. So I don't really know the reason, but a mixture, I would say. Janice's resolve does waver and she actually does go back to Cameron. Like, he begs her to come back. He's like, I'll change. I'll get counselling. Like, just come home. I'm sorry. Counselling <laughs> is not going to fix that problem. <laughs> One night in September, um, she woke up and she's just like, let's just burn everything. Let's just burn the equipment, the photographs, everything. So Cameron's like, you know what, you're right. They gather up um, all of the magazines, the whips, the leather cuffs, the gas mask, the slavery contract, the slides of K being hung. And they dumped um, them all in like a, a barrel in the backyard and they struck a match. 
Colleen Stan, she rejoined her family in Riverside. So she kind of told them somewhat of what she had gone through over the last few years. Like, she didn't really reveal to the extent of what actually happened. And she even spoke to Cameron on the phone sometimes. Why? No, seven years of isolation. You, I know, I know, you I know, know, but... Her family are like, look, you need to go to the like law enforcement. But she's like, no, I want to put this all behind me. I just want to get on with my life. Um, Jan, at this point, though, back with Cameron, she's starting to worry that he's stepping back into old habits. And she's also worried that he's going to kidnap someone else. And in early autumn, she took her daughters and she finally left for good. On Wednesday, the 7th of November, Jan is finally just emotionally exhausted goes to her pastor's office and told him exactly what had been going on for so long. And finally, someone with sense phones the the Tahama County Sheriff's Office and Cameron Hooker is arrested. Thank God. Thank God. He's charged with kidnapping, false imprisonment and multiple sex offences. He pleads not guilty to all of these charges. Basically, his defence is he's like, yeah, I kidnapped her. But like, you know, then she decided to stay of her own free will. The trial court, so they admitted into evidence 100 pieces of evidence. So even though they'd burned like a lot of the stuff, they hadn't burned all of it. Like there had still been photographs of Colleen like hung and in, bon- in bondage. Um, There was also uh the head box they had. They also had a copy of a copy of the slavery contract. Um, So in terms of like Colleen's stay and all this time, Two uh, expert witnesses testified. So basically this physician who examined Colleen, he's like a psychologist. um, And basically he sort of gives his opinion as to Colleen's treatment. Uh, He listed a number of factors that led him to conclude that Colleen was coerced into staying with Cameron Hooker and obeying him. He explained how abducting her suddenly isolating her, removing her clothes, abusing her, removing her from daylight, controlling her food and water intake, controlling when she went to, was allowed to go to the toilet, creating this atmosphere of total dependency, requiring her to ask permission for everything, threatening her family, threatening to sell her to another captor who might treat her even worse, torturing her. Like this you know, getting her to sign the slavery contact, this this whole new life, this was like a, this an effective technique to coerce a victim. And brainwash her. And brainwash her. Um, he, he explained that like th- these techniques were actually like talked about in bondage literature, like sadomasochism literature, which obviously Cameron Hooker was familiar because he read all these magazines and he had all this like equipment. Um, and the psychologist suggested that it would be a long time before Colleen was ever, you know, able to return to like, you know, le- leading a normal life. Um, so he, he admitted kidnapping her. He admitted keeping her in a box. He admitted engaging in bondage with her. But he insisted that she consented to all of the sex acts. Um, the eventually... Thankfully, the jury found Cameron Hooker guilty of kidnapping with use of a deadly weapon, forcible oral copulation, penetration with a foreign object, six counts of rape, and he was sentenced to a term of one to 25 years for the kidnapping with a consecutive five to 10 years for the weapon, um, followed by a six to nine year determinate term for the remaining offences. Basically, he wasn't going to get out. Yeah. His wife, Janice, was granted immunity um, for an exchange for her testimony, and during sentencing, um, the superior the superior court judge who died in two thousand and twelve called Hooker the most dangerous psychopath I have ever encountered. Uh, he actually came before a state parole board in two thousand and fifteen, but thankfully. That they denied him release because he was manipulative, he lacked remorse, he was a danger to society, um, and he won't get another hearing for 15 years. And Janice just got away scot free. Pretty much. Ac- this is interesting as well. During the trial, Janice actually revealed. Now, this is. Okay, let me just read it out. 
He revealed that her husband had captured another young woman, 19-year-old Mary Elizabeth Van Hage, on January 31st, 1976, which was a year before um, they captured Colleen Stan. She said that the couple picked her up when she was hitchhiking and according to Janice, they took her to their home in Red Bluff and Cameron actually murdered her. Um, Now, this is a girl that actually did go missing who's never been found. However, there was no evidence to actually prosecute Cameron for her death. In the years since, Colleen Stan has changed her name, had a daughter and done her best to move on. I thoroughly enjoy my freedom. Always, always, always. Life today is good. You have to learn how to live in the noise and not let the past drag you back. What an attitude to have. Like, oh my God, to have gone through all of that and then just like have that attitude on life and yeah. to be able to get on with their life. Um, It's just, it's a crazy story. Most of the information for this episode I got from the book Perfect Victim, written in part by Christine McGuire, who was actually um, Colleen's attorney. So that's where a lot of this information coming from. It's a terrifying story. But the good thing from this story is that Colleen Stan made it out alive. And has got on with her life. Got the on best with her way life she the best way she could. And Cameron Hooker will rot in jail where he belongs. Okay, everyone. Uh, thanks for listening and tune in to next week's episode of What's the Crime? And we will talk to you then. Thank Bye. you.